Genesis 34 was a debacle for Jacob and his family. If you were here the last time we were in Genesis, it was not a pretty picture. Now in chapter 35, though, our man is back on track, walking in obedient faith. Uh, And once again, we can see the significant spiritual transformation that God is working in his life. And so now that he's doing the right thing, and now that he's walking with the Lord, and now that he's sort of left his old Jacobness behind, if this were a fairy tale, we'd expect to read in chapter 35, and they all lived happily ever after. Uh, instead, that's not what we read. In fact, Jacob and his family are going to face some pretty tough days in our passage. And that's because the truth is there is no way for us to avoid sorrow and struggle and loss in this life, not altogether. Some suffering, yes, is self-inflicted, as we saw in chapter 34. A lot of the tragedies of chapter 34 were because Jacob wasn't uh, obeying God and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, and he faced the consequences of that disobedience. But even when we're walking with the Lord faithfully, we can and should expect there to be trouble in this life. Jesus, our Lord, said as much in John 16. He said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And so, you know, there's trouble in Genesis 34, trouble in Genesis 35. What gives? Well, there's a significant difference between these two chapters. In chapter 34, there's no mention of God at all. No word from him, no petitions to him, no remembrance of him. And yet we see he saturates chapter 35. He's leading and speaking and promising and fulfilling and gathering all sorts of great things. Uh, Donald Gray Barhouse, uh, Barnhouse, the great pastor of yesteryear, uh, he has a, you can listen to his teachings on a podcast. He's, look it up. It's great. He has maybe the strangest and best pulpit delivery of them all. Uh, I would mimic it, but it wouldn't do it justice. So Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, go look him up. But here's what he wrote. Chapter 34 does not mention God, and it's full of lust, murder, deceit, and wretchedness. But chapter 35 is filled with God. His name appears 10 times, plus once as God Almighty, plus 11 times in the names of Bethel and Israel. The contrast is striking as it must be in the life of a believer living out of the will of God and again when that believer returns to the will of God. So Jacob faces trouble in both chapters, but in this one, God is furnishing uh, help and peace and grace in a way that Jacob was unable to receive last time. And we'll find that as one generation of the family of faith is gathered into eternity, the next takes up the unfolding drama of grace and redemption. So we begin in verse 1. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God's giving very clear directions to Jacob here, and he's encouraging him to keep the vow that he had made 30 years earlier. Uh, But the Lord was also, in a general sense, calling Jacob back to a life of pilgrimage. It wasn't just about, hey, you have to, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's. You have to fulfill this vow, otherwise we have a problem. He needed to fulfill his vow, and we've talked about that previously. But God is also just saying, hey, Jacob, you need to to start again this life of pilgrimage again. The command, go up, and the term used there later became the technical term for going on pilgrimage, especially to Jerusalem. 
as shepherds, God's people would necessarily move around a lot throughout the land. Uh, But the Lord always wanted them to live with the understanding that they were sojourners with him, being led and used to be a blessing to the lost world around him. Always a good reminder for us. We are strangers and sojourners in this world. Uh, We rub elbows with lots of different people and communities in this world. We have to have a vocation, you know, in order to survive in this world, all of these sort of things. But above all of that, the general call of our lives is to be pilgrims with the Lord, remembering that this world is not our home. Uh, Our King is Jesus. He is leading us on, and we are sojourners with Him. Verse 2 says this, So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We're always shocked in these passages when we read about God's people slipping into idolatry It happened all the time in the Old Testament, just about every era of God's people, uh, this was happening. And guess what? It still happens today. Um, It doesn't take the same form, typically, of of people hiding away little statues in their house. But idolatry is, is always something that we need to guard against. What did John say in his epistle? Little children, beware of idolatry. Keep away from idols. And so, uh, still a warning we need to take today. At the same time, idols were not only a religious item here in this sense, they were also covered in precious metals. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 describes that, that these pagan idols, and they found them uh, in archaeological digs. They would often have um, lots of, of precious metal adorning them. And so Jacob is not only asking them to de-paganize, but it's important to note that he's also challenging them to trust God and give up a major financial resource. Though these idols would have enriched them economically, they were defiling them spiritually. Just having them was a defilement, and Jacob says, you have got to get rid of these things. We see God transforming and strengthening Jacob here. Back in Shechem, if you recall, uh, Jacob cowered in silence the whole passage, unable to lead. And now he's again at the head of his family, bringing them back into right relationship with the Lord and explaining the truth to them. That's, That's a good thing. Cyril of Alexandria points out the spiritual analogy here. We, too, must change our garments in order to be purified and be made right with God. And this is why the Lord gives us a robe of righteousness, the Bible says. Um, But that image of God giving us a clean robe of righteousness, we shouldn't think of it as just, well, that happened one time and then I don't, I don't have to worry about it, you know, purification or sanctification or God's cleansing. I don't have to worry about that anymore because that happened before and now I just do whatever. Uh, that's, that's not the case. As we live out our faith, we're saved. I'm not saying that we lose our robe of righteousness, right? But as we live out our faith, we are to continue receiving that sanctification process, that purification and that washing. The Lord talks about how we're washed with the water of the Word. Ephesians 4, says this, "'Take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth.'" 
And elsewhere, Paul talks about, hey, let this mind be in you. And so we understand that uh, even though we're saved, we've been wrapped in the robe of righteousness, you know, the Lord is going to keep us safe and secure in our salvation. At the same time, as we understand from the New Testament, we have this old sin nature that wants to just crud up your life and wants to uh, uh, fight against what the Lord wants to do. It wants to, it embraces defilement, all of these sorts of things. And so the Lord says, hey, listen, I want to continue sanctifying you and cleansing you and washing you. I I want to uh, accomplish this day by day in your life. I want to continue to make you clean. I want to continue to fashion you into this new creation I've made you to be. Repentance is not simply feeling guilty, uh, but it's turning from sin toward God and submitting to His sanctification that He wants to do. Because remember, He is conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, repentance is all part of that. This invitation given by God through Jacob to this idolatrous group of people uh, is particularly amazing when we recall what this group of people had just done in chapter 34, uh, mass murder and, you know, and looting uh, and, and, and uh, blaspheming God by, uh, by cheapening the right of circumcision and all these things that were really, really, really bad. And then we get to chapter 35, and God continues to extend His gracious invitation and offer to these people. Uh, God's grace is so ready to save, so ready to forgive, so able to cleanse the detestable sin that defiles our lives if we will turn to Him. Uh, I love this line that the Lord gives in the Old Testament. And he says, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow if you are willing and obedient. Uh, So a great, gracious invitation that the Lord gives us out of his kindness and love to uh, we who are black-hearted sinners. Verse 3 says, we must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He's been with me everywhere I've gone. I like that Jacob says, we must go to Bethel. And it was true. It was a must. When God gives a command, it is a must do. You must be born again. Uh, The gospel must be preached. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. These are all taken directly from the New Testament. And I, one of my favorite musts, not given as a direct command, but obviously the Spirit applies to us too. John the Baptist, what did he say? He must increase, I must decrease. And so there are these significant musts in our lives. Uh, and, and Jacob here, he, he gathers his family and all of the people that were with him, and he says, we must do this. And Jacob then reminds his family that the Lord had been with them everywhere they've gone. And so they didn't need these stupid gods of the land, gods who couldn't speak, gods who couldn't help, gods who couldn't give anything, gods who couldn't protect themselves when they were being looted by these people, right? Uh, This is what's so amazing about, you know, particularly this kind of idolatry, but the spirit of idolatry is always the same, just because we don't have, 
you know, dumb little Molech idols doesn't mean that the, our culture isn't saturated with idolatry. Of course it is. But this is what's so comical and tragic about idolatry. You know, you have to carry the gods with you. You have to clothe these gods. You have to protect them. You have to maintain them and all these different things. And meanwhile, the one true God He says, I walk with you by my own power, and I speak to you from my living word all the time, wherever you go. doesn't matter if you're in the depths of the sea or way out where, you know, the people on the ISS right now, I'm with you everywhere. And even when you are unfaithful, I am faithful to you, and I am with you, and I am speaking and moving and acting and drawing your heart toward me and all these different things. And so Jacob says, man, the Lord has been with us everywhere we've gone. To get rid of these stupid idols. He could look back on the years of distress, distress under Esau, distress under Laban, distress in Shechem, and it was clear that the Lord was his shield and his rear guard everywhere they went, even while his kids are playing around with these dumb Canaanite idols. And the Lord says, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to keep my covenant with you, uh, even though you don't deserve it. Verse 4 says, Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. So these earrings probably belonged to the idols rather than the people. There's archaeological evidence that shows these sort of statues would be given lots of jewelry, including earrings. They found uh, some of these Canaanite gods, and they have little gold earrings or little pierced ears. And, uh, and so it's probably the idol's earrings. It's also possible that they were amulets or images of foreign gods that the people might wear, but uh, just kind of interesting. Where, you know, I read this and I think, well, are they everybody walking around with like big earrings in their ears or what, what's going on? They probably belong to the idols themselves. Why would Jacob choose the, this particular oak, which was a sacred oak, Uh, in the sense that God met with Abraham there at this oak. So why would Jacob choose that spot to dump this devilish treasure? Uh, We're not told, but I suppose if one of his sons sort of wavered and decided to go and dig up these idols one day, he would have to face the fact that while he was shoveling through dirt to retrieve these lifeless gods, quote-unquote, he'd be standing under the shade of the tree where God Almighty himself spoke face-to-face with their great-grandfather, a God who really speaks and really acts and really appears and who really accomplishes the impossible on behalf of his people, especially this particular family. And so we don't know exactly why he picked this spot, but that's the spot he picked. Verse 5, when they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So the thing that Jacob had been so afraid of previously, the people of the land attacking them in in, uh, retaliation to what they did in Shechem, that was just a non-issue immediately, thanks to the grace and ability of God. In the last chapter, uh, when Jacob was living life according to his own plans and desires rather than according to the leading of God, it led him to a place of fear and a place of weakness, right? And he was so afraid that he let his fear drive him into some terrible choices. We saw that effectively his fear led him to say, yeah, okay, let's just marry in with the Shechemites 
and uh, will cease to exist as a distinct people, effectively. And so fear drove him to do that because he was so afraid that they were going to be consumed by the people of the land that he willfully agreed to say, well, why don't we just slowly be assimilated into the people of the land? But, you know, when we walk with God, all of that changes, and, and the Lord casts out fear, and we don't have to be afraid. Because, as Eugene Roop wrote, the triumphant presence of God accompanied them on their pilgrimage. And the presence of God accompanies you and I as we pilgrim through this life as well. That doesn't mean there aren't scary situations or that there aren't scary threats out there, uh, but we can be sure that the Lord is with us and that we don't have to be afraid. What a good message that is from God's Word. Verse 6, So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Thirty years earlier, that's how long it's been, Jacob left Bethel as one lonely man. Uh, All he had was his walking stick with him. Now he returns with a great wealthy host. He was just 20 miles from Shechem here, but what a difference obedience makes. We see how Jacob's thoughts are so full of God here. It's not just Bethel, the house of God. It's El Bethel, God, the house of God. He just, he's just keeps thinking about God. He keeps talking about God, naming things after God. But now in the wake of this beautiful moment, right, it's been 30 years in the making that he's going to fulfill this vow and that he's going to stop and realize, oh, man, God has been with me everywhere I went. God has been with me every day that I've been alive. God has been with me in every moment of distress and delivered me. Uh, God has, has done all that I've asked and more. God has been faithful even when we were unfaithful. And, and so let's worship and let's do what I said I was going to do. And now I'm no longer Jacob. Now I'm Israel. And so this is this great just climax and culmination of spirituality where it's like, wow, finally this guy who's been kind of a bum for 120 years is finally now just at this great spiritual pinnacle, and yet in the wake of this beautiful moment of obedience and worship and thanksgiving, well, the all-too-frequent tragedies of life rear their ugly heads. Verse 8, Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah, died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel. So Jacob named it Alon Bakuth. We're left to wonder why Deborah was found with Jacob rather than Isaac. When did she join his camp? We don't know. Way back in Genesis 27, when Jacob was first fleeing from his brother, his mom, Rebecca, had said, hey, I'll send for you and I'll bring you back here. That never happened. By this point, Rebecca is already dead. Perhaps when Rebecca died, Deborah came and Uh, decided to live with the man who had been sort of like a son to her. They had a close relationship. We see Jacob wept at her loss. He even named this tree in memory of his grief, and so this was a, a hard loss for him. We can sense the godly changes in Jacob's heart. In chapter 34, like I said, when his his daughter had been violated and taken hostage, Jacob didn't weep, he didn't act, he didn't even say anything. He was numb to her suffering and to the, the wrongness of what was going on. Now, as he's walking with the Lord, what do we see? We see a man who's obeying and leading and worshiping and testifying of God, and, and we see him weeping appropriately in this tragedy of life. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You'll no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. 
God also said to him, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed an assembly of nations, will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I'll give you the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac. I'll give you the land to your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Bruce Walkie points out how, once again, it was God who took the initiative to renew the covenant. Obviously, Jacob had not been living in the covenant. He had left the land, right? And we've tread over all of this. But, but Jacob didn't have to come to Bethel and then start shouting to the heavens and be like, hey, can we, can we pick things back up where we started? No, it was God who met him there. God said, hey, why don't you come to Bethel? Because I want to renew covenant with you. I want to uh, promise again to you. I want to show you how I'm going to continue this gracious work in your life. And so he takes the initiative on the behalf of the people of earth. Now, listen, if we as human beings were scoring the performance of Jacob and his family uh, to be the family of faith, right, to be, you know, the, the family that was going to be used to deliver the Messiah, if we were scoring them, well, I don't think they'd get a call back, right? Uh, their, their, their interview process has not gone very well, if you ask me. At best, we would have put Jacob on probation or sort of changed the terms of the offer, knowing he probably couldn't live up to the deal. But not the Lord. It was the same promise he had made to Abraham and to Isaac, because it was God who was going to accomplish this work, not man. And so he came down from heaven in a theophany so he could bless Jacob and tell him once again, I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for you, Israel, and the, all the Israel that's going to come after you. It's a plan that's going to last for thousands of years and on into eternity. And so there's just so much grace in these stories. Genesis is a book that is obviously full of, of depictions of sin, showing like, hey, this is what sin is. This is what sin does. This is how sin ruins the entire world. This is how sin wraps its tentacles around your heart and crushes everything that's good. This is how sin pollutes all communities and, and destroys all of the things that you really want for life and for the world. That Genesis shows a lot of that again and again and again and again. But above all of that, Genesis is a book that shows the incredible grace of God, that, that God is a God who con- continually is but God. This person did this, but God. This person did this, but God. Uh, you know, the, the flood happened, all of these things, but God steps in to show grace and to show mercy and to show the way that human beings can be redeemed from sin and transformed by his power. And so, uh, same promise, what a great moment. The Lord says here, be fruitful and multiply. That's come up a bunch of times in Genesis before. It was told to Adam, it was told to Noah, it was told to Noah's sons, and now it's being told to Jacob and his family. And so there's just this whole sense of a new beginning. The Lord's saying, hey, you know, you had some hiccups going, you know, going out to Laban and all this kind of stuff. You had some hiccups where your brother was almost going to murder you for a while, but now I'm beginning again that work that you put on hold when you walked out of the promised land. And so be fruitful and multiply. God's grace has been the same from the beginning, right? God doesn't just keep changing his plan and say, well, that doesn't work. Let's try this. That doesn't work. Let's try this. This has always been God's plan. And even when human beings try their best to ruin what God is doing, he says, okay, we can deal with that. Adam, you ate from the tree. Okay, we can deal with that. I already have a plan in place for that. 
Meanwhile, I, what I've asked you to do needs to continue. Be fruitful and multiply. And right, we're in the church age, we're told to be fruitful and multiply. It has a different connotation in this dispensation. We're to multiply by making disciples, the book of Matthew says, and we're to be fruitful by bearing spiritual fruit and allowing the gospel to operate. We're told in Colossians that as the gospel operates, it bears all kinds of fruit. And so the Lord's work is the same. His grace is the same. His work continues uh, day by day, year after year, all over the earth. Verse 14, Jacob set up a marker at the place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. You know what I like about this? There's no immature bloviating this time. Uh, last time God appeared to Jacob at Bethel, Jacob had said, oh, well, he had this speech. Well, if God does this and if God does that, then I suppose he can be my God. And, and, but we don't see any of that this time around. Uh, just worship, uh, just a memorialization of the greatness of God and, a, and an offering made to him. Verse 16, they set out from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and her labor was difficult. So, a bunch of questions are going to rise in this next couple of verses. One of them is, if God told Jacob to settle in Bethel, why were they leaving? And if Rachel was this pregnant, super pregnant, then why in the world would they all set out on this kind of journey? Remember, when Esau said, hey, why don't you come with me? He said, man, we can't. I've got animals. I've got young ones. If we drive for even one day, I'm going to lose the whole herd. And so now we see Rachel is super mega pregnant, right? And he says, all right, pack it up. We're all going to take a hard journey to the south. So what's going on here? We don't know for sure. Maybe Jacob received word that his father was dying and he felt the need to fulfill the rest of his vow where he talked about returning safely to his father's house. Even if it wasn't about the vow, Isaac was soon to die and it was very important for the sons to be there to bury their father. We saw how significant that moment was when Abraham died, significant enough that Isaac and Ishmael came together and said, hey, well, we got to bury the hatchet and we're going to bury our dad at the same time. So Rachel is very pregnant and apparently starts hemorrhaging perhaps during a breech birth. Verse 17, during her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid for you have another son with her last breath for she was dying. She named him Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. Ben-Onai can mean either son of my sorrow, or some linguists make a case that it could mean son of my vigor. The former seems more likely since Jacob feels the need to overrule his wife and call him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, or it could mean son of the south. And I only say that you know, it seems like it's son of my sorrow because back before, one of his wives said, I'm going to name my son, now my husband will love me maybe. And Jacob was like, yeah, you're good. Let's, let's stick with that, right? So, uh, so now he says, son of my sorrow, you know, like son of my suffering. And he's like, well, we're not going to do that. His name is Benjamin. Uh, hard day to be sure. We're saddened at the loss of Rachel in this tragedy of life. But then, frankly, we're surprised by what happens next. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is the marker at Rachel's grave still today. It is a big deal that Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, the only wife of the four he had that he even cared about, 
you know, the, the, the woman that he was completely in love with and worked 14 years for, all of this, all that. It is a big deal that she was not buried in the family tomb in Mamre, which was only, it wasn't that far away. It was like 20 or 25 miles away. Why in the world wasn't she buried there? Jacob's body is going to be carted 200 miles from Egypt so that he can be put in the family tomb in Mamre. So what's going on? This is a really significant family ritual that, hey, we all go here, we all go here, we all go here. Promise me that when I die in Egypt, you're going to take me back to be put in the family tomb. Yet, as one commentator noted, Jacob commits his beloved's wife, wife's corpse to a roadside grave. It's weird. So what's going on? We're not specifically told the reasoning, but it is interesting to note that from antiquity, many cultures around the world had specifically different burial customs when it came to women who died in childbirth. One paper published in the Journal of Biblical Literature cites examples from Assyria, the Philippines, Nigeria, Benin, and elsewhere. For one Liberian ethnic group, the tradition was to bury a woman who died in childbirth in a shallow grave. And believe it or not, in England, starting in the 15th century, the bodies of English mothers who died in childbirth were frequently interred outside the sanctified walls of their local churchyards. And so there's a lot of cultural stuff going on that isn't discussed in these stories, and we just don't know all of it. Uh, It's possible that tradition and superstition were the deciding factors for leaving Rachel where she was. But we also see Jacob's grief and his desire that Rachel be remembered. He sets up a monument for her that is so solid, it seems that it is still standing at least 860 years later when Samuel says to Saul, hey, go to Rachel's grave, you'll know where it is, and then turn left, and then don't, you know, and that, take a right at Albuquerque, right? So in chapter 48, uh, Jacob talks about the great sorrow that he had at the loss of his wife, Rachel. So it's weird We're not sure why she's not buried there. Uh, At least a couple of scholars make this case that there was a huge amount of superstition in most cultures about women who died in childbirth. Uh, That could be something. Verse 21, Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Hold there. So commentators agree that this really wasn't about, like, this wasn't a romantic relationship. This wasn't about Reuben having lust for Bilhah. It was a a political move. It's a power play. Uh, Think of when Absalom does the same thing to his father, right? When he drives David out and then he goes and sleeps with the concubines to consolidate his power and make a big political statement. It's also possible that Reuben, who was the firstborn of Leah, wanted to take just brutal revenge against Jacob because, you know, in this time it would have been opened up old wounds that Jacob loved Rachel so much and that he had never loved Leah, which was true. He never loved her. She wanted him to love her and he just never did. And on top of that, you know, we saw how, how upset the brothers were when his dad, their dad sat idly by when Reuben's sister was raped and held hostage. So now as Jacob mourns Rachel the only wife he actually loved. Perhaps Reuben wanted to push his dad out of the way, seize control of the family, while also just twisting the knife uh, and sticking it to him. It's a bad scene. 
uh, Bilhah was Rachel's servant, and, and Reuben was disqualifying her from any sort of future family activities, defiling the father's marriage bed. Uh, they, Jacob and Bilhah would not have relationship after this anymore. Perhaps the wives were still in some sort of competition, especially after God's new command to be fruitful and multiply. We're not sure, but whatever the reasons, this was terrible and sordid and just, just the worst. Now, Reuben's power play doesn't work, not even a little bit. He loses his position as firstborn uh, with Simeon and Levi also disqualified from the Shechem incident. The lead now would fall to Judah, but we'll see that Jacob bypasses Judah and he chooses to give the birthright to Joseph and he cites this incident as the reason why. Uh, but of course, Judah as a tribe would become the most prominent and most powerful sort of they received the birthright of the Messiah in the future. It's sad. Reuben will later be described as a man who excelled in prominence and power, had a lot of potential, but instead of walking by faith, he walked in the flesh and so he joins the list of, of a bunch of firstborn sons in Genesis who the Lord passes over, right? Cain, Ishmael, Esau, now Reuben. Why? Because they would not honor God. They would not obey God. They fell into sin. They went the way of the flesh, and ruin was the result. Frankly, even Adam fits this list, right? The, the firstborn, Adam, what did he do? He, instead of honoring God and instead of obeying God, he went into sin. And so the first Adam was a failure, but praise God, the second Adam uh, would come from heaven to save us and to, and to receive all that God wanted to do. Verse 22 continues, Jacob had 12 sons. Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The son of Leah's slave Zilpah were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So obviously that closing phrase is a generalization. Benjamin was born in Canaan. It is interesting that all the heads of the tribe of Israel, of all of them, just one was actually born in the promised land. Uh, I, I found that interesting. Now, this list is categorized not by birth order, but by kind of group, right? By, by, by mother and group and sort of social standing. And, and it's, a, it's another hint that all was not well relationally among this next generation that was rising up to take the place of Jacob and his generation. Their many problems are seen through the stories of Reuben and through stories of how uh, just the saga of Joseph, uh, the life of Judah, uh, Simeon and Levi, they, they got a lot of problems. And, and they remind us that humanity is not going to someday produce a perfect person or generation. Humanity is not going to get better. Humanity is always steeped in sin, always bound by sin, always held captive by the devil to do his will. We need a perfect, powerful God to step in and make right what we've done wrong. The only hope that we have is to be hidden in God and allow him to give us a new mind, a new heart, a new purpose, a new life, a new future. And without that, humanity has no hope. The focus is on the sons, but it is worth noting that Jacob also had other daughters. They make an appearance in chapter 37. So he didn't just have the 12 sons plus one daughter. He had other daughters as well, we'll be told. Verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years 
took his last breath and died. He was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So Jacob would have been 120 years old at this point. And this means, if we do the math, that Isaac actually died around 12 years after Joseph is sold into slavery. We don't know if he was made aware of that or not, but kind of interesting. All of the patriarchs were familiar with sorrow and loss. All of them had to face death because death is the consequence of sin. But in the end, they were gathered into their eternal home thanks to the grace of God. Not one of these patriarchs lived a perfect life. Far from it. Uh, but they were gathered into eternity. And it, back on earth, God's work would march on with all the grace and help and faithfulness that each previous generation had known before. Following God did not mean the absence of difficulty or suffering or death, but those who walk with God are able to face the troubles of life with peace and assurance and support and confidence that our Lord is by our side and that He's leading us forward in grace and forward in spiritual growth and and that He is leading us home. Uh, He's filling up our days with lots of good godly things and He is leading us home. As we grow older... Hopefully, we are growing stronger in the Lord, closer to His heart, uh, making progress in our walk with Him. I'll close with 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh.